watching The Jacobin Show. As always, I'm Jen Pan. I am actually here today with producer Kale Brooks, the one and only. Uh, we've been hearing from Kale fans that uh, you all want to see more of Kale on screen. Uh, I think everybody knows that Kale is behind the scenes for every show, but we thought we would drag him out into the open finally. So Kale, how are you? I'm doing well. Happy to, to help open the show. Um, just pulling the curtains. It, it, usually, I'm just behind the scenes, just yanking on the the cord, trying mm-hmm. to <laughs> try to give Close as much the curtain. Cl- open the curtains. Open the curtain. Yeah, opening curtains. I don't know. There's uh, creating bad metaphors. <laughs> I'm good. How well, are you doing? In, all good. Uh, in any case, you know, here's Kale. Uh, he will be sharing some thoughts shortly. I just want to quickly mention um, before we get started that today's show, on today's show, I'll be talking to Richard Wolf, uh, the great economist, about the American economy and whether we're heading into a recession. I'll also be talking to our good friend, Bhaskar Sankara, about whether Bernie Sanders has a successor and what that would even mean. And I'll be making my own comments about, um, ongoing Democratic Party incompetence. So please stay tuned. Uh, But first, uh, Kale, before we get to all of that, what's on your mind this week? Yeah, well, I think it's probably worth addressing. I think all those other things we're going to talk about are good, and and you should stick around and watch those. But I think it's worth addressing. uh, There's this good article that was written in the last week or so uh, by Ryan Grimm of The Intercept titled Elephant in the Zoom, How Meltdowns Have Brought Progressive Advocacy Groups to a Standstill at a Critical Moment in World History. Uh, It's a very long article, um, and there's a lot of anecdotes, but it's definitely worth reading, I think, uh, because the anecdotes actually do help kind of paint the picture that he's he's creating for us, Um, because it's a real problem that he's addressing, which is primarily the fact that, uh, as many of you who are watching this probably know, uh, within organizations, activist groups, but also NGO groups, groups that have some attachment to activism but you know maybe aren't the same it's not it's not just a dsa problem it's planned parenthood it's um you know greenpeace it's uh the sierra group it's all these like progressive social uh advocacy groups or activist groups um that over the last few years have increasingly been mired in internal criticism internal reforms of uh, trying to reform office culture, um, including greater diversity training, etc. Um, and it's become a problem because, as the article outlines, uh, more and more of the groups are spending their actual time and energy focusing on these internal reforms rather than actually doing anything. <laughs> like that they're not... Uh, this is a point that, that Ryan makes a few times in the article that uh, there's a Democrat in the White House, there's a Democrat... Uh, democratic legislature um and so there's limitations but there's real opportunities and it seems like these groups are spending most of their time instead of pushing for their stated objectives and goals uh trying to you know 
create the workplace that they want. Um, and so there's, I think, a, an interesting tension there where on the one, there's obvious, I think we can identify some pretty obvious issues. And on the other hand, um, you know, there's the, the case against it would be, well, we need better office cultures. The office culture is pretty bad <laughs> generally when it's dictated by managers and by bosses. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, these are, this is like an uprising from below of people saying we need to reform office culture so that it's, uh, you know, more anti-racist, it's more inclusive, et cetera. There's, there's that case, but um, Jen, what did, what was your reaction to this article and, and broadly this phenomena that we've thought about and talked about quite a bit? Right. Um, So first, I just want to echo your thoughts that I thought it was a really good article. Um, I encourage everybody to check it out. Uh, If you have spent time in progressive nonprofit uh, spaces or, you know, in kind of like activist groups, I think a lot of this will uh, ring very familiar. Uh, Now, that said, I do want to say, although I really liked the article and I thought it was very well reported, um, I something I was thinking about is I almost feel like the article... um, represents the problem as one of like woke staffers terrorizing uh, kind of like befuddled and uh, maybe more centrist upper management mm. who, you know, want to do the work, but now they have to confront like all of these internal call outs and, you know, crazy like Slack and Zoom confrontations and all of that. And I don't doubt that that is actually happening to some degree at the organizations that Ryan Grimm profiles. Uh, but as someone who has worked in, you know, progressive nonprofits, including at a lot of very, very uh, bad uh, organizations with like completely deranged social justice cultures. Mm-hmm. I want to say that it, it goes both ways. Uh, it's not woke staffers, at least in my experience, it's not just woke staffers terrorizing, you know, more reasonable managers. It's woke staffers and woke managers. And I'll just give a, a very brief kind of example or anecdote. Uh, I, I once worked at very briefly at a progressive nonprofit, which of course I won't name, uh, where, uh, you know, th- this kind of like social justice, uh, emotional terrorism, I guess you could call it, really did cut both ways, right? Mm-hmm. So um, one example is there was a white staffer at this organization that felt that she was being mistreated by her supervisor, who was a black man, and so took the complaint to upper management. And uh, one of the you know executive directors told this staff, one of the executive directors who was herself black, told this staffer, you just don't understand how black people talk. So like that was her way of kind of using like the language of social justice or, you know, like racial awareness or whatever to write off a staffer's what seemed like a staffer's legitimate workplace concern. Right Mm. now Mm. that said, uh, you know, this definitely went the other way as well, where the staffers at this organization were obviously, you know, I think that there were legitimate workplace concerns, legitimate labor concerns. Um, after all, you know, nonprofits tend to, they, you know, they run on shoestring budgets. Even if they have a lot of money, they tend to work their staffers very hard. Um, I think something that Ryan Grimm's article points out is, you know, oftentimes the language of like, we're doing this for the movement mm-hmm. is used to kind of try to push some of the, you know, legitimate workplace concerns about long hours or abusive bosses or whatever under the table, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, those are all very real concerns. 
Um, what I noticed at this place that I worked at was the staffers, uh, because they were kind of beholden to woke language and sort of social justice culture, they wanted to funnel all of their workplace concerns into kind of the framework of racial justice, right? Which mm. Ryan Grimm's article, again, points out like a lot of staffers are sort of prone at these places are sort of prone to do. So what ended up happening was... Um, I guess I'll just say, you know, to wrap up my kind of long-winded remarks, like part of the reason why I'm so skeptical of these kinds of social justice cultures and like the lay and trying to funnel everything into the framework of racial justice or racial awareness is because I think it produces bad solutions. So mm. at this place that I worked at, you know, like I said, there were plenty of legitimate workplace concerns about long hours, you know, abusive bosses, uh, just, you know, being treated unfairly, so on and so forth. And the way that these staffers talked about it is they made it about racism. So they were like, they were like, this organization has a race problem. It can't hold on to black staffers. Uh, you know, we've gone through we've gone through this many black staffers over the last year. The turnover rate among black staffers is really, really high. Uh, now, that was true. The turnover rate was really high in general. But do you see what I'm saying? Like they kind right. of made it into this issue of like the organization can't hold on to black people. And Again, while there may have been a sort of kernel of truth to that assessment, what ended up happening is they were like, okay, so what should we do about this? We need a chief of diversity. So they they basically, you know, by sort of pushing these general workplace concerns into the framework of racial justice, the solution that they came up with was a new manager. And, you know, I mean... This is like a little bit of a tangent. My my main point was that I think, although I really liked the Ryan Grimm article, that kind of like social justice, like culture, like emotional blackmail, I think really does cut both ways and managers do it too. Right. Well, I think that's a bit part of it's also, I think like it's a really useful tangent because it's middle-class people creating middle-class solutions to their, mm. to their problems. And part of the problem, like in... Grimm, I think, kind of doesn't address this nearly enough, actually. But, but part of the uh, his subheader of this critical moment in world history uh, is the fact that all of these issues that deal with, like, progressive social justice, that, like, actually bettering people's lives and creating a better society are currently in the hands of middle-class people that are in these NGO structures that have institutional logics that have to, you know, they're dependent on uh, fundraising from donors and whatever. There's there's that side of it, but it's it's both an institutional factor and then also the individuals that make up this that are themselves middle class, that when they come to these problems, they don't come to it, uh, you know, usually they don't come to it with like a material interest involved that, you know, it's that they're getting by in life is dependent on addressing these problems in the way that, you know, most workers have historically come to, you know, progressive political projects through unions, through labor parties, um, because they actually have an interest in advancing social justice in this, in this way that is truly universal and progressive. Um, and so I think these middle class people, it's largely for them, uh, it's moral issues. It's they they feel there's like a you know they feel horrible that the world is is falling apart. And I think kind of if you know if there's any like soul in you, like you feel that like the world is falling apart. Um, but their politics are not based on solidarity. They're based on 
charity. They're based on donations. They're based on kind of this like weekend activism, uh, you know, email lists. It's like pieces that maybe fall into an actual political project that actually changes the world, but Mm -hmm. it's like just the marginal stuff. It's, it's like not the real kind of meat of what like progressive organizing uh, looks like or should be, or actually has worked in the past. Um, So just add on to that. uh, I think that, you know, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that most of these sort of progressive NGOs, um, especially the higher up you go, do not have working class constituencies. And um, I mean, they may believe themselves or they may actively uh, want to act in the interest of the working class in many cases. But when I say constituency, I'm talking about the standard Adolf Reed definition of like a group of like actual people with names and addresses. Right. right. And these um, these NGOs, you know, uh, don't don't have that constituency at all. I mean, that's just again, as you sort of alluded to, they who are they beholden to? Obviously, right. they're donors uh, and and the foundations that fund them. So, yeah. And and a lot of it, it's that. And then it, it is like a lot of it's kind of the socialization of these individuals where it is like just kind of yeah. narcissism. It's right. just like well, when you say, OK, but when you say that, you know, by virtue of being more middle class or like college educated or whatever, uh, the people who staff these organizations from top to bottom aren't necessarily acting in their material interests. It's interesting because Ryan Grimm's article talks about how these staffers, um, you know, sort of similar to the phenomenon that I was talking about earlier, like kind of blend larger social justice, social justice concerns with like their own workplace demands. Wouldn't you say that that is in a way acting in their interests? Yeah, no, no. Right. So that's, I think, yeah, they're acting in their own material interests as middle-class people and then create middle-class solutions to these problems. Whereas the actual diversity managers or whatever. Right. Whereas like, yeah, we're the actual, but the whole thing is that it never actually addresses the problem because Mm -hmm. the middle class just is incapable of like solving the issues of capitalism and of, you know, these large structural systemic issues. Uh, They, they largely just kind of make their place within the world a little bit cozier um, when, when they, you know, are successful. So that's I, I think like the the material interests that you know bring people together around kind of universal systemic changes uh, that lies with like working people where they they don't want to to be exploited where they want you know certain aspects of life to be guaranteed public goods um, you know that democratic control and, and decision making um, whereas that just it's just kind of borne out in the in how middle class people actually pursue politics. They don't do that. But they deal but they're the ones who right now have a grip on these issues. And so we have to we have to find a way to to like either strip them of their control over these issues. These middle class people saying this is what uh you know this this is what climate action looks like. This is what reproductive rights looks like. This is what uh you know job uh rights on the job look like. Um, and it has to be brought back to, to workers and to unions. Um, but... I agree with that broadly. I do have a few bones to pick about your overall comments on the middle class, but I realized you and I had like a long conversation about this, which is definitely on the YouTube channel already. So yeah, if you're watching, you can... um, check that out. Oh yeah, so we'll we'll find right a way here. to get that. Yeah, it's right here on screen. <laughs> uh, you can you can hear Kale and I uh, talk about the middle class and 
their their relationship to social change a little more. Um, well, Kale, do you have any last thoughts on the Ryan Grimm article? No, it's good. You should read it. Yeah. <laughs> That's, well, that's basically that's basically where I am as well. Um, and, and I'll just say, like, I think that most people who are watching this channel, like, already know this. But if you are, like, a young leftist and you are looking to, I don't know, get involved in some kind of, you know, movement work or whatever, please don't work at a progressive nonprofit. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's it's like I said, I mean, I. I'm sure plenty of people have good experiences, but they're notoriously horrible workplaces. I think as the article, you know, shows and as we've been talking about, like it, they, I think that they just produce like really like deranged and insane cultures and uh, you can do much better work elsewhere. So yeah, don't make yourself more paranoid than you need to be. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, uh, we're going to talk to Bhaskar now. All right. Well, I'm now here with total stranger Bhaskar Sankara. You, of course, know him as the author of The Socialist Manifesto, and he is the new president of the nation. Obviously, here at Jacobin, we don't know him at all. Bhaskar, it's good to see you. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I've only had to, you know, ask five times to be on, but I was you know, so glad that you guys finally agreed to have me on. Yeah, we, uh, we, we caved into Bosco's begging. Uh, we finally decided to bring him back. Um, no, actually, Bosco, the reason why we wanted to talk to you today is, number one, uh, you had a recent interview in the New York Times with Ezra Klein, where you sort of talk about uh, kind of the state that the left is in right now, right? And the impetus for that conversation was uh, not Jacobin's recent issue, but the issue that came out before, which is called The Left in Purgatory. We covered that a little bit on the show, and I think that there are some um, sort of interesting themes that we can uh, we, we can talk about today. Um, but the second piece is that uh, our friend Bronco, of course, had a piece in Jacobin recently uh, arguing that Bernie Sanders should run again, right? And uh, I, I, I feel like I recently saw um, uh, Bernie sort of come out and say, like, if Biden runs in 2024, I'm not going to run. So again, I think he's kind of put the lid on that. But it did get me started thinking about um, how something that I think is sort of dispiriting about the left right now is that Bernie Sanders really has no successor, right? Uh, at least that's what that's that's what I think. And so I thought maybe like we could have you on today to, to talk about that. Um, do you think Bernie Sanders has a successor? Uh, I, I know that, you know, people have sort of floated this idea of like, obviously, AOC as a successor. Um, I think I saw an article where like some progressive groups are trying to put forth Ro Khanna as a Bernie successor. And, you know, like I like I like those politicians and, and I like a number of other sort of left or like Democratic Socialist aligned politicians at the local and state level. But like I said, I still feel like Bernie Sanders has no successor. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? Why doesn't Bernie Sanders have a, have a successor? And like, what would a good Bernie Sanders successor even look like? Well, I think Bernie Sanders just emerged in such a unique um, situation. I mean, he was someone who came out of the old left. He identifies as a socialist since he was um, you know, a student at the University of Chicago he drew on a much older left-wing tradition. He was involved in trade union work and the civil rights movement uh, and so on. And obviously, he's a quirky guy. I'm not saying that he had his, his um, ready-for-the-masses message um, altogether in the 1970s when he was basically a back-to-the-lander in Vermont 
um, and involved obviously in important, you know, solidarity work, um, but very much was like in a, a man of the new left in many, in many ways. But by the time the 80s came around, you had Bernie as a politician who learned how to win over voters and to organize people with a clear, straightforward message. And he, that was tied to his socialist identification. But the most important part wasn't his ideological checklist. It was his method of politics, which was a class struggle oriented mode of politics. He would create a polarization and talk about millionaires and billionaires standing the way of progress. And I think that with some politicians like AOC, you get some bad tendencies that I also saw in the Bernie campaign, particularly in 2020, which was just turning politics into a laundry list of stuff Mm -hmm. we want, like a policy wish list, um, instead of narrowing down the focus of to your strongest points and what you want the election to be about. So, you know, Bernie was talking about Medicare for all and lowering drug prices. If the election was fought on that basis, Bernie would have an upper hand. But instead, we extended the scope of things to encompass lots of other things we we care about, too, like, um, you know, student loans or, um, you know, free Internet or whatever else. And a host of things that I think a, a left wing administration would bring into being. But your rhetoric kind of needs to have that repetition. And that that was a strength of Bernie. I think AOC falls sometimes in the laundry list uh, type of politics. And also, I think sometimes her rhetoric is much more academic. So instead of just talking about one type of, um, you know, exploitation in a broad term um, that can encompass a lot of people, we're talking about there's like the multiplicities of different things. She's always trying to like complicate things mm-hmm. saying, oh, you're, it's good that you're concerned about this, but you should also be concerned about this and how these two things relate to each other, uh, which again, I'm not opposed to necessarily at an intellectual level, but fundamentally with politics, we need a simple common sense class struggle narrative. And I think Bernie was much closer to that. And then on the policy end, you know, I think Ro Khanna actually is a little bit better, for example, just because you brought him up. I think he's much better at um, narrowing down the focus of things and and becoming the representative who cares about trade policy and cares about, uh, you know, working class economics and a host of other stuff, which, to his credit, is impressive because he's in California District 17, you know, a very deep Mm -hmm. blue district. So he doesn't really have to do this. But I think that is a better rhetoric. And a better focus for, um, you know, more uh, contested working class districts. But, you know, he constantly is identifying as a progressive capitalist, which is kind of like meaningless. And it gets to the point of like wonkishness. And he doesn't have that focus on antagonism. So Mm -hmm. there's not enough of the Bernie style. You know, we're getting eluded by some people and here are their their names, you know, and they're they're millionaires and billionaires profiting off your situation. It's much more diffuse. And I I think uh, that that's a problem that at our best AOC doesn't doesn't have. But, you know, we're we're dealing with a bunch of alternatives who, again, are better than your average American politician, but don't seem to have that combination um, that that Bernie had. Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask a kind of related question now, which is, uh, I feel like, you know, during the 2016 and 2020 Bernie Sanders campaigns, uh, there there was kind of a segment of the left, or at least a segment of progressives that would say things like, you know, well, I like Bernie, but 
like the future of the left doesn't look like Bernie Sanders. So the future of the left isn't Bernie Sanders. It's it's someone like AOC. Um, and, you know, the, the implication here being that like a young woman of color who, you know, kind of speaks more of this like social justice language is more of the future of the left. Or, you know, people would say like, well, like the future of the left isn't Bernie Sanders. It's some it's something like Black Lives Matter. Right. So like, you know, not a politician or like not a single person, but kind of like a broader movement, which, again, is more situated in something like racial justice. Uh, what do you make of that claim? I mean, I, I, I have some thoughts. I have some thoughts about it. Uh, but but you go first. Well, I think to start with AOC and Bernie Sanders, in my mind, have the same background. You know, they're both mm-hmm. um, children of immigrants. They are both um, you know, born in um, New York City, but upwardly mobile, uh, then uh, get a chance to go to an elite school and is in this kind of liminal space in between, um, you know, kind of more working class roots uh, than obviously kind of the chance and upward ascent. Um, they both obviously choose to identify with the political left and become ambassadors of the political uh, left. So I actually think that especially, you know, if you you know, consider, um, you know, their, their backgrounds are not all that, that, you know, different, Mm -hmm. uh, to, uh, to begin with. Um, now I think that the goal of a left is to build a majority behind the type of transportation transformation that we want in the United States. So we want to build a left that can organize people at their workplaces that can elect candidates that can push to make America a more egalitarian uh, place. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think that there's a segment of the population we could afford to ignore. I don't think we could write off right. potential leaders because they're, they're white males, um, nor do I think that we should um, necessarily avoid criticizing and pushing um, our you know representatives of the left uh, who aren't white males. So I think... Mm-hmm. That right. there's a fine line because with AOC, I think a lot of criticisms can become very hyperbolic and very mm-hmm. uh, personalized in a way that that I think is quite unfair. But on the other hand, she has this kind of historic responsibility in America, yeah. not by our own choice, but just because of the dynamics of capitalism and imperialism is the most important country at the moment, at least on Earth. Um, and if we think that the left is important and the left has an historic mission, then uh, our most widely known non-Bernie Sanders democratic socialist in America, AOC, has a, you know, almost world historic role. So uh, <laughs> so there's some sort of, uh, I think, middle ground between um, criticizing her for like fairly banal like Instagram stories. Like sometimes yeah. some of the times the criticism is worthy, but other times it's just like, yeah, it's just like a 32 year old with an Instagram is going to, you know, you know <laughs> it's, there's nothing really like there to, yeah. to attack. Um, but on the other hand, I think when it comes to her rhetoric, at her best, she was really like soaring and she mm-hmm. was invoking almost like a sort of New Deal like populism mixed with an identification as a socialist and mm-hmm. uh, just seemed to really capture something. And then, then, I think she's her own worst enemy at other times and she's invoking like hyper academic specialized rhetoric where it's not clear that she has like a grasp of what she actually wants to say and what her intervention um, should be. And it often reminds me of, you know, the difference between when you 
kind of know what you want to say, but you haven't really like thought through it fully, and then you are halfway through saying it, like this interview, for instance, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then you're just caught in this, you know, vague space in between. I think like a lot of her her talking about policy is that, whereas Bernie is by no means like a policy expert on a lot mm-hmm. of things. You know, he's not known yeah. for that, but he just kept it simple to first yeah. principles. Uh, then he would let other people down the road and his staff complicate it. Um, yeah. But he wouldn't complicate it himself. Yeah. I mean, to go back to something that you alluded to earlier, Bernie was just like the master of the pivot. And I think the classic example is, you know, when he sat down for an interview with Maureen Dowd, uh, I, I believe mm-hmm. last year, he just whipped out a list of things that he wanted to talk about. And Maureen kept trying to like bring up Dua Lipa or like, you know, things that were outside the scope of the list. And he would just hold it up and wave it at her. Like, I think that that is so classically Bernie and something that's sort of related, which I think is also something that you're getting at, you know, when contrasting AOC and Bernie is, at least for me, I felt like Bernie did a kind of incredible job of consistently leaning away from culture wars. And by that, I mean, you know, so so let, let's take a kind of like hot button, like rhetorical issue that people have been discussing, which is the um, the use or lack thereof of a term like Latinx, right? Mm-hmm. Like something I remember about the Bernie campaign is they, in 2020, and I believe in 2016, they were specifically like, we're not going to use this term. It's like, again, it's very academic and kind of NGO, like like lots of Latino people who are surveyed say that they don't know about it or they don't like it. So we're just going to call Latinos Latinos. That was a specific strategic messaging decision the campaign made. But obviously, Bernie Sanders isn't a culture warrior like Marco Rubio or, you know, I don't know, name any other name X Republican or even some Democrats who are like going on Twitter and complaining about the term Latinx. He's just like, this isn't a part of my campaign and I have no further comment. Right. Uh, By contrast, you know, AOC, I think Mm -hmm. recently like started a little bit of like an Internet flurry again when she sort of ostentatiously was like, well, here's why I use the term Latinx and I'm specifically, you know, juxtaposing myself with the democratic politicians who say that they don't want to use it. Um, you see what I'm getting at here? Like, it's yeah. just, it's, it's not that Bernie was like ostentatiously anti-woke or anything like that, but I feel like the difference is that he sort of leaned away from the culture war, at least in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I think that, well, in, to some extent, AOC's whole exchange showed her at her best and her worst, right? Which is that, she was pushing back against the culture war um, in one instance by saying that, you know, if you actually like care about these issues of jobs mm-hmm. and education and you care about these communities and like, you know, the label doesn't matter why you're focusing on the label. That was part right. of it. And then there was kind of the affirmation of the label itself. Um, but right. I think so there was kind of the two souls of AOC um, there. But yeah, fundamentally, I think on a lot of these issues, we want to pivot from the culture war as much as Mm -hmm. possible, right? We want to pivot to just common sense, bread and butter issues. And then obviously part of our premise is that if you have a broad-based working class left and a working class movement in the United States fighting for political ends, it will just look, quote unquote, a lot more normy just by virtue of there being more people um, involved. Obviously, there's an encounter that argument, which is just that you know, in certain instances, could our rhetoric be a barrier towards building that coalition to begin with? Right. Um, I'm not sure it is right now. I think even with the term Latinx, 
I actually don't think there's a very large constituency even on the left defending it. Uh, but I think that yeah. it's useful as a shorthand because it kind of um, it's useful because the type of um, push behind Latinx that was that was there for a little bit um, is emblematic of other pushes that are just purely right. about um, rhetoric and about convincing yeah. people to use more inclusive language and you're spending all this capital and all these like NGOs or even activist organizations in the left uh, are spending time internally policing language instead of outwardly trying to build this kind of coalition. And, you know, mm-hmm. for the record, I think Hispanic is a lot more inclusive because it uses you know, a lot more, um, you know, Hispanic people in the U.S. use that identification to begin with right. compared to even yeah. Latino. Um, but I do think it, it, that's a perfectly illustrative example of the difference between the two. But also, I would hesitate to completely write off AOC in part because she has this, um, I think, this other part to her politics that we need to have her you know, come out with. And again, AOC is not a candidate for office that is not yet elected. She's already elected, if that right. makes sense. And, and yeah. at a certain point... Because she was a part of this wave, because she identifies as a democratic socialist, her identification as a democratic socialist is stronger than any of our individual identifications as a democratic socialist. So if <laughs> right. she's open right. to being transformed on some of these points or pushed on some of these points, then I think we kind of have to, you know, the old expression, yeah. like, dance with the one who, who brung you. Yeah, I, I, okay, so my next question isn't really about, like, AOC proper, but something I was thinking of is, uh, Natalie Shore came on the show uh, a while ago, uh, obviously when the Left in Purgatory mm-hmm. issue came out, to talk about her article on AOC, and we got started talking about this, like, very specific type of liberal that uh, was like, I hate Bernie Sanders, I cannot stand him, like, no more old white men, but I love AOC. Uh, I don't know how, like, widespread this type of person is. I suspect that they're sort of limited to, like, liberal think tanks on the coasts. Um, But, I, you know, something I asked Natalie, which I'm now going to pose to you, is like, do you think... Do you think that that kind of aspect of AOC or of a politician like AOC of kind of like, you know, not not necessarily consciously, but nevertheless sort of courting or like appealing to a kind of segment of the liberal electorate uh, is useful in any way? I mean, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say Natalie and I were both like, I think that that has diminishing returns, but I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that in low turnout Democratic Party primaries that actually actively pissing off um, certain liberals might not be a good thing. Um, but yeah. our main goal is kind of other otherwise. Our main goal is to organize working class people around a broadly economic platform uh, that ties in social issues into core uh, the primary contradiction, if you want to put it in those terms, uh, of core economic issues. And obviously, to the extent that um, certain liberal groups stand in our way, then uh, we'll have to, you know, criticize and figure out ways to to kind of take them head on. In other okay. cases, it might be a lot more contradictory. Like you could run a race, um, progressive race, and you might find that like the local Sierra Club is, is fine. <laughs> We're in the abstract, the Sierra Club is terrible. At the national level, they're pretty terrible too. Um, so it might be that a lot of people, even who are 
member activists of some of these fairly decrepit liberal organizations are persuadable because yeah. maybe that was the only game in town when they entered mm-hmm. politics seven, eight years ago. Maybe um, they are just broadly progressive and this was their outlet and they're in a red district and, you know, liberal groups took on a different, um, you know, uh, spirit there. Um, yeah. So, so I do think that, that um, we want to, again, have candidates that focus not on just a list of policy preferences, just not mm-hmm. on like a, a, a recipe list um, of, right. of things we want, but uh, candidates that focus on class and focus on class yeah. antagonism, because mm-hmm. it's a lot different to have a candidate who says, you know, I'm worried about the trade deficit because American businesses are less competitive and we all need to band together. And the candidate that says that, like, we're having our jobs outshored because we're not investing enough and we need to take on the establishment and entrenched yeah. power who are standing in our way. Like, on the face of it, they might come to similar short-term policy conclusions, but there's a huge difference in the movement and type of politics we're trying to, to build. And again, right. sometimes that overlaps with these cultural divides of parts of the right. left that um, want to focus on bread and butter issues versus like want to talk more about about race as racism as kind of a freestanding system. Um, but but aside from that, there's also this cleavage between people who center left politicians who want to talk about um economic policy in a certain way versus right. the Bernie type politicians who talk about it in a different in a different way. And I think we need to have the toolkit for our politicians so they know both the rhetoric and, and how to talk about policies without um without it becoming a um like Elizabeth Warren style uh progressivism right. um and also not become like this weird um like linguistic um yeah. you know somersaults. So I guess that kind of leads to this broader question, which is something that you got into when you were talking with Ezra Klein, uh, and and that's the class composition of the left, right? Like you talked with Ezra about that at length. We have talked about it at length on this show. And, and so, you know, basically like everybody who's watching, I think, is sort of familiar with the problem that the left, you know, since the 60s and 70s has tended to become more professional managerial class or middle class and has sort of... Uh, lost its working class base. Uh, That said, what do you think is the biggest obstacle right now for the left when it comes to developing or like building or like getting back a working class base? Is it kind of these cultural and rhetorical and linguistic uh, ticks that that we've been talking about? Or is there something else? Well, I think our rhetoric on the left is wrong, but our rhetoric is a product of defeat. So I think that past defeats have inherited us uh, a starting point for organizing this country, which is like almost nil. Um, and also, it's left us cloistered in the ghetto of the left. And we've, some of us have, have um, you know, we're in small socialist groups that had our own particular language and quirks. Um, you know, like I, I come out of the American socialist movement, far from being a mass force in society, one that that, um, you know, could tell you exactly what year um, the Russian Revolution degenerated into Stalinism and whether we were, um, whether the USSR was a bureaucratic collectivist you know, country or a state capitalist country or, or somewhere, you know, in between. Um, but the question is really, 
is that the primary barrier? Um, no, not necessarily, but it is the thing that we can most easily fix. Right. Um, so both in our, in, in my like analysis, I, I think that we're, we're dealing with the weight of history and the weight of past defeats. But the reason why I emphasize rhetoric so much is because I think that's something that our candidates can really learn from. And we already kind of know the, the, the secret of running more competitive races. I mean, even when we lose, we could still get closer if we realize that, you know, working class voters prefer candidates who focus primarily on economic issues. They're not yeah. opposed to any mentions of racism. They're fine with mentions of racism, but they mm -hmm. want those bread and butter issues to be framed in universal terms. So yeah. uh, healthcare is good because healthcare is good, not because healthcare is a racial justice um, issue. Um, right. And I think they also, um, in general, um, don't want candidates who are you know working at hedge funds or trial lawyers yeah. or whatever whatever else i think there's a strong preference towards working class um you know um professions and and, and right. again there's a host of just things that we can do to make sure that even if we are reliant on an activist base to begin with we're not just stuck with this base forever and this base yeah. evolves and joins like a whole, emerges with you know, if, if you want to put it that way, the working class as a whole, because if you look at a lot of these groups, like look around at groups you might be a member of, you know, maybe an environmentalist group, maybe it's a socialist group, whatever else. And just ask yourself, is this group equipped, prepared and doesn't even want to have an influx of five, six, seven thousand working class people to join it tomorrow? Um, right, right. Because at the very least, we should be building the shells of organizations that become mass organizations in the future. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't be building groups that are so sensitive that, you know, a few um, interpersonal things or um, a few, you know, controversies um, totally um, gets it gets it destroyed or they spend so long just inwardly debating with each other and then deciding yeah. when the next meeting is instead of outwardly uh, kind of in in action um, doing right. things. And I think at our best, the Democratic Socialists of America is a group that um, runs candidates and campaigns, uh, supports um, labor uh, drives, and does a host of things that are really productive. At our worst, we're a group that's very inwardly focused. So I think there's certain groups that are kind of like on the cusp of, of both, and we just have to hope that the best tendencies uh, win. All right. So I, I want to wrap up on a slightly optimistic note here. And I somebody sent me this tweet a while ago, and um, we're going to throw it up on screen. I'll read it. Somebody tweeted last year, speaking as someone who occasionally stuck my toe into the world of socialist politics pre-2015, it's hard to overstate just how off-putting and alienating a ton of it was. So obviously pre-Bernie. And then this person goes on to say, like, for all the things there are to complain about now, we don't regularly have people interrupt events to yell about how the SPD killed Rosa Luxemburg. And then the kicker is they then write, a favorite memory is Bhaskar Sankara interrupting one of them back and admitting to doing it personally. So, Bhaskar, you're on record as having killed Rosa Luxemburg, apparently. Um, but do you agree with the overall assessment yeah. that the left... Even even as kind of uh, sort of gloomy as things seem now is still in a better place than it was pre-Bernie. 
Hey, listen, I would have been on Rosa Luxemburg's side because Weimar didn't end very well. <laughs> you know, I feel like I feel like any any sort of um, you know um, uh, form of socialism would have worked better than than the Weimar Republic did. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that Bernie Sanders is responsible for us having this taste of of power, <laughs> this taste of of at least thinking seriously about what it would mean to um, have a left winger in the White House. But that was always meant to be just phase one of a multi-phase plan, right? So the logic was our roads to building and organizing a left were totally blocked. Um, We were completely weak and disoriented. We would try to run a competitive campaign, maybe even get someone in the White House. And from there, that person could help create through the bully pulpit of the White House and through the bully pulpit of the campaign, even before that, the conditions in which we could repoliticize parts of American life that were totally um, unpoliticized. Um, but ironically, I feel like, one, we failed in our attempt. We were able to rejuvenate parts of the left. Well, we seem to re- be repoliticizing some parts of life that don't need to be politicized. Um, and we seem to have left uh, a lot of workplaces and a lot of day-to-day concerns of poor and working class people, um, which are largely economic concerns um, in the, um, you know, in the rearview mirror. And I think it's really important for people just to remember that one core message can just about work for everyone. If you look at the yeah. voting patterns of white workers, Latino workers, um, uh, black workers, Asian voters, they're all more or less the same. You know, people care about healthcare, they care about jobs, they care about a host of the same issues. Now, when you want to reach people, when you want to transmit your ideas, that's where I'm very open to particularly, you know, culturalist um, ways of um, organizing, you know, if, if if you find that they're effective. You know, it might be that that if you want to win over black voters in a democratic primary, you have to be more sensitive to the black uh, church. You have to be more sensitive Mm -hmm. to um, certain organizations and civic organizations if you're in an Asian, um, you know, working class area. So obviously there's tactics involved. It's not just a matter of like saying, I'm going to say the same five class reductionist things over and over (laughs) again. You know, there needs to be some sort of creativity. I think Bernie actually did that with his... Um, you know, talk to your TO kind of, um, you know, campaign with mm-hmm. Hispanic voters. You know, that, that was quite, quite effective. So mm-hmm. I'm all for uh, a new wave of creativity in how we make these approaches. But I do think we kind of need to keep I it agree, simple. but I will also, I will, I would also say that the like worst case scenario of that is Hillary Clinton is your abuela. Remember that? Um, Yes. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I actually, yes, that was kind of corny, but I did really respect Hillary Clinton because uh, she kept hot sauce in her bag. And I think. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I I think that won her at least a few, a few voters. Yeah. 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 My my mom's a Trinidadian. She actually keeps that pepper sauce in her bag. So, you know. And obviously voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, She, she, um, did she vote for Hillary Clinton? No, she was a firm. Um, she was a firm Bernie, Bernie voters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she. She. I mean, like a lot of working class people. I think you know. Um, I, I think um, you know my my mother was, who's working class Democrats. I should say, are uh, very much pro Democratic Party. 
So she's mm-hmm. like, oh, look at all these wonderful, you know, nice people. So she liked Bernie. She liked Hillary. She, she yeah. likes Biden, you know, and I, and I think, again, that's that's a much co- more common thing out there in the mm-hmm. wild um, and that we need to uh, relate to than, uh, yeah. than on, on Twitter. Fair enough. All right. Well, Bosker, uh, good to see you as always. Thanks again. And we'll get you back soon. All right. Great. Thanks for having me. All right. So I'll be back in a minute with some new comments on uh, why the Democrats, again, are losing and incompetent. But first, a quick message from our sponsor, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. Join in June and get your first month free. This month's selections are Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Freedom by Ben Tarnoff, A Radical Manifesto for Fixing the Internet by Deprivatizing It, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History by Hugh Lemmy and Ben Miller, A Historical Biography Based on the Hugely Popular Podcast Series, Humanitarian Borders, Unequal Mobility and Saving Lives by Polly Pallister Wilkins, and Interrogation of the Politics of Humanitarian Responses to Border Violence and Unequal Mobility, The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism, A Manifesto to arguing against the ideology of growth and without apology the abortion struggle now by jenny brown an indispensable guide to building a fighting feminist movement for reproductive freedom become a member today at versobooks.com Last week, the Federal Reserve announced its largest interest rate hike in nearly three decades, which means that the U.S. is probably now on track for a new recession right when most of the public is already feeling incredibly gloomy about the state of the economy. As you can imagine, this doesn't look great for Joe Biden or the other members of our current governing party. So what exactly have Democrats been doing to address the economic pessimism sweeping the nation on the eve of midterms? For the most part, not much. The Democratic Party's main preoccupation at the moment appears to be the January 6th hearings. According to the New York Times, some Democrats are hoping that the hearings will give the party a much-needed boost during midterms by giving them a chance to show just how evil, anti-democratic, and Trump-happy the Republican Party remains. According to Politico, other Democrats know the hearings won't help them in November, but they're leaning in anyway. Meanwhile, despite the event's primetime billing, only 19 million people tuned in to watch the first night of the hearings. By comparison, over 73 million people watched the first presidential debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump in 2020. In other words, it's not looking terribly likely that this particular bit of political theater is going to drive Democratic voters to the polls this fall. Worse still is that this whole spectacle has now given Republicans another opportunity to try to outflank Democrats on bread and butter issues by talking about gas prices while Democrats are talking about Mike Pence. Bernie Sanders is now begging the Democratic Party to get its shit together. In a recent op-ed, he wrote, While the Democratic Party has, over the years, been hemorrhaging support from the white working class, it's now losing support from Latino, Black, and Asian workers as well. Bernie, of course, is right. The latest warning sign was a special election last week in South Texas, where Republican candidate Myra Flores flipped a congressional seat in a largely working class district that has consistently voted for Democrats for nearly a century and is 84 percent Latino. What did her ads focus on? Jobs, gas prices and, quote, Texas workers and their wallets. Washington liberals are killing the American dream, attacking oil and gas jobs and causing prices to skyrocket. I'm Myra Flores, and I approve this message because I will protect Texas workers and their wallets. 
The truth is, if Democrats are crushed in midterms this year, which seems almost guaranteed at this point, it won't be because of disinformation, voter suppression, white supremacy, or any of the other excuses that the party likes to trot out to explain why they lose election after election. It's going to be their complete lack of interest in campaigning to working people. According to a recent survey from Pew Research, 70% of Americans currently consider inflation a very big problem and 23% consider it a moderately big problem, which means that in total, a staggering 93% of Americans say that inflation is a big problem. No other issue in this survey even comes close to inflation, but it is notable that the second rank issue is the affordability of health care, which nearly 80% of respondents said was either a very big or moderately big problem. Now, I could be wrong, but it seems like these are actually issues that Democrats could theoretically campaign on instead of avoiding. After all, when asked about inflation, most voters have rightly identified supply chain shocks and corporate profiteering, not the Biden administration or social spending, as the main drivers of increased prices. Democrats might not be able to wave a wand and lower gas prices or make inflation disappear overnight, but I suspect that fighting for any kind of economic relief for working people would go a lot further electorally than simply calling inflation, quote, Putin's price hike, as Biden did earlier this spring. 70% of the increase in prices in March came from Putin's price hike in gasoline. For instance, even the incredibly popular expanded child tax credit that Democrats shamefully let expire at the end of last year would have alleviated some of the financial pressures of soaring gas and grocery prices. Maybe it's time for Democrats to at least talk about renewing that one. The same, of course, goes for the issue of health care. We all know that Republicans have consistently and vehemently opposed every single popular health care reform, including Medicaid expansions and bills to lower prescription drug prices. So when nearly 80% of the American public agrees that healthcare costs are a problem, it seems like it might be an opportune time for the Democratic Party to rally around the Medicare for All bill that Bernie Sanders recently reintroduced. Of course, not a peep about the bill from mainstream Democrats. As usual, Democrats have largely resigned themselves to playing catch-up on fundamental bread-and-butter economic issues, which opens up an unfortunate political opportunity for Republicans to position themselves as economic populists, no matter how disingenuous they may be. Take the still-ongoing baby formula shortage. The baby formula recall that kickstarted the current crisis began back in February, but Democrats really only addressed the formula shortage after it started becoming a PR liability for them in May, which gave Republicans time to get out in front of the issue. Marco Rubio, for instance, ended up calling for the government to invoke the Defense Production Act to start manufacturing baby formula well before the Biden administration ended up doing exactly that. Now, I probably don't have to tell anyone that Republicans have no actual solutions for the families who are getting squeezed. After all, almost 200 Republicans voted against increased funding to the FDA to address the baby formula shortage just last month. But this all still raises the perennial question, why are Democrats letting Republicans blindside them on economic issues? Some of it, of course, is due to the party's fawning deference to the professional managerial class wing of its base. Democratic politicians know they can excite and reliably raise money from affluent donors by stirring the culture war pot as politicians like Gavin Newsom have been tirelessly doing. But decades of bleeding working class votes, particularly in swing states, should make clear how futile this strategy is. 
to invert Chuck Schumer's famous line, for every New York Times reading college graduate in an already deep blue district who gets pumped up when Democrats campaign on the January 6th hearings, the party should expect to lose two working class voters in the Rust Belt or the Southwest. This is incredibly unfortunate because at this point, we have survey after survey that confirms how effective strong economic messaging is with working class voters. In fact, in yet another study on this topic that was just released, researchers tested campaign messaging with residents of former manufacturing towns to see what kinds of political messages resonated most with voters in America's deindustrialized Rust Belt. They found that messaging, quote, based on populist economics, including healthcare, wins out over the culture war. In terms of the things working class voters in these counties care the most about, are most focused on, are most passionate about, it is economics, not culture war debates. And yes, we all know that Democratic Party elites have long ceased to care about the white working class in the Midwest, but as Senator Sanders and others have noted, Latino and Asian working class voters are also increasingly abandoning the party. As dire as midterms look for them right now, Democrats still have a chance to win back working people, and the way to begin doing that has been staring them in the face for years. They should act on it before it's too late. All right, so I am now here with Richard Wolf. He's Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's also a visiting professor over at the New School and, of course, the founder of Democracy at Work. Professor Wolf, it's really great to have you on. Thank you, Jen. Glad to be here. So let's just dive right into the news. Uh, Last week, of course, the big news was that the Fed made a pretty steep interest rate hike. uh, And that, of course, has spawned fears that we might be heading toward a recession. And I wanted to get your your take on this because, um, you know, I I have heard some progressive economists kind of pushing back against the idea that we might be headed toward a recession and saying, well, you know, we actually shouldn't uh, overstate the power of the central bank. Right. So uh, I suppose the first question for you is, um, what effect do you think the interest rate hike will have? Uh, and how likely is it that we are actually heading toward a new recession? Okay, um, the interest rate hike will definitely hurt everybody who has to borrow money one way or another because it makes that activity more expensive. You get the same amount of a loan, but the interest you're going to have to come up with every year uh, while you carry that loan is going to be higher. So you are out money. If you've been hurt by the inflation, you will now, in addition, be hurt by higher interest rates. And to make it clear, if you want to buy a new or used car, uh, the vast majority of Americans do that by buying on time, stretching the payments out over three, four, five, six years. A higher interest rate means that for the exact same car purchased for the exact same price, your monthly payment will have to be significantly larger this week than it would have been if you bought the car two weeks ago. Um, ditto if you want to buy a home. Uh, if you're going to take out a loan, which we call a mortgage, that will now be more expensive. If you have a credit card balance, you're going to discover that they can raise whatever it is uh, their interest rate is Last week, they can make it higher this week, and that'll show up in a bigger minimum monthly payment that you have to make on that, and so on and so forth. You also face the fact that many corporate entities uh, are deeply in debt, 
corporations in America today are in greater debt than they have ever been in the history of this country because we've had 20 years of very low interest rates during which every capitalist enterprise uh, solved any problem it had, a bad technology, poor choice of product, conflict with their workers, whatever it was, the quickest, easiest uh, cheapest way of solving the problem was to go borrow money at virtually zero or very close to zero interest rates. Because they're so indebted, as these debts become due, what most companies do is you know, say we owe a billion dollars uh, and uh, 200,000 of it have to be paid by the end of July. Well, what you, what you do normally is you quote unquote roll over the debt. You don't pay it back. You go through a ritual within a 10 minute period. You technically pay back the, the, the 200,000 you owe but immediately borrow it back again so that you don't actually have to come up with it. You literally, you're extending the loan, but you will have to do that at the new higher interest rate compared to last time. So carrying an already existing debt is becoming more uh, costly to a corporation. And if it can, it will pass on that cost to the mass of people. So long story short, this is going to hurt everybody who is in debt or who does business with an entity that is in debt because the chances are part of that debt you're going to be required uh, to pay, uh, number one. Number two, it doesn't reduce the uncertainty of the economy because no sooner was the interest rate raised by three quarters of a percent then everybody who knows how this game is played began speculating on what's going to happen at the July meeting. Will they raise interest rates again? And you have to now strategize, and it's all a gamble because you can't know, whether to take all kinds of steps now to protect yourself against an interest rate which may or may not come. And because that's a gamble and, uh, you know, what we call a crapshoot, basically, uh, we have no idea how to answer the, your question. That is, there's no way to know how long this is going to last, how high the interest rates are going to go. And then the big question, what will be the uh, cumulative impact, say, by the end of this year of whatever interest rates are increased and whatever reactions uh, people and businesses take, whether that will end up with a recession or not, at this point, the odds are going up literally every day that we will have a recession so that the speculation has already within the last week moved over from will we have one? More and more, the question is, how bad will it be? That is, right. how long will it last and how deep will it cut? Mm -hmm. So that, that brings up the question, you know, the Biden administration, I think, has been their line has kind of been like, trust the Fed. Right. But yes. I, I, I'm now wondering, you know, what do you think the Biden administration can do to prepare for this likely upcoming recession? Um, Biden, of course, you know, as as a former member of the Obama administration, has presided over a recession before. Uh, what sh what steps should the Biden administration be taking? Well, the first thing is, let me comment briefly for Mr. Biden to have reappointed Mr. Powell was a bizarre thing for a Democrat to do, mm. number one. And then to have said, as he did literally a week or two ago, that he's leaving it to the Fed to manage this is, 
I mean, for me, it's a dereliction of duty. I mean, what do we need Democrats for if they're going to cede something as fundamental as economic policy during an inflation to the other party? I mean, the joke that they're two wings of the same party is literally becoming reality as we talk about it. I find that amazing. But it goes together with, and this is the real answer to your question, it goes together with a unanimity across Republicans and Democrats about interest rate increases as being literally the only thing we can do. That's why Mr. Biden's is okay with Mr. Powell, because they both agree that's what they're going to do. Just like they both agreed, uh, starting back in the crash of of 2000, the so-called dot-com crash, they agreed that loosening monetary policy, what was later called uh, quantitative easing and so on, was the thing to do. I find this bizarre because it is contrary to the basic curriculum that is taught in most American universities who at least give lip service to the fact that there are multiple ways of dealing with an inflation and that raising interest rates by no means was, nor is it today, the universal agreed upon necessary policy. It's none of those. So let me give you just two examples of what else could be done. And rather than spin you a hypothetical, I'm going to give you two examples from American history when in one case a Democrat and in the other case a Republican did something else, either to stop an inflation already underway or to prevent one from starting. So I'll begin with the latter. Richard Nixon, conservative, Republican, president, 1971, August 15th, gets on radio television, announces a wage price freeze. Here's what it means. As of tomorrow morning, says the president, as president, if you raise your price as a business, we will arrest you and we'll throw you in jail. So I advise you, don't do it. If you're a worker or a union, if you press for rising wages, we will do the same. There will be no change in wages or prices so that we bring this inflation to a halt. I didn't make this up. This is the history. Go check it. Anyone can. The inflation stopped on a dime. It is an alternative that doesn't require raising a single interest rate by a single basis point. It's just not the case that doing what we're doing is the only thing you can do. And by the way, other countries have done exactly the same thing. Uh, it's called an incomes policy in some countries, uh, but it's a, a, it amounts to basically uh, the same thing. Here's my second example. This time it's a Democratic president, Franklin Roosevelt. It's the early 1940s. The United States is gearing up to fight a war. It's already in World War II. Here's the problem that the economists advising Mr. Roosevelt explained to him. We are now shifting resources in America from producing consumer goods to producing for the war. We have a serious war with uh, 
Germany and Italy and Japan, and we have to shift uh, railroads and factories and offices and warehouses from doing what they always did to produce consumer goods to instead producing munitions, uh, uniforms for the soldiers, and all the rest. Therefore, there's going to be a sudden drop in the supply of consumer goods. But there isn't going to be a stop in demand for them because our population hasn't shrunk uh, and people haven't drastically altered their consumption patterns. They're still going to want to have a cup of coffee and they're going to want a gallon of gas in the car to go to shopping or to their job or whatever. Uh, so we got a classic problem. Demand remaining the same, supply drastically curtailed. If we allow the normal market mechanism to manage this situation, we're going to see a rollicking inflation because the people who demand, seeing the shelves uh, empty from the consumer goods, will start bidding up the price so that the relatively scarce consumer goods end up in their hands rather than in the hands of someone else. The bidding will begin and It'll solve the problem the way markets always do. Whatever is scarce in a market is ends up in the hands of the richest people. It doesn't square with any morality I'm familiar with, but we celebrate the market in this country. It is, in fact, the closest we have to a genuine as opposed to pretend uh, religion. Uh, Roosevelt says, oh, my God, we can't do that because then middle income and poor people will be enraged as they watch rich people walk off with scarce consumer goods. The wealthy family will get the milk whose price they've built a bit up and give it with enjoyment to their cat. Whereas the neighbor who has five babies in the household will be unable to afford the high priced milk and the babies will have to do without. This is going to produce bitterness, anger, envy, and social division, which is not good for fighting a war. So what did Mr. Roosevelt do? He said, we are not going to use the market to get to sell uh, scarce consumer goods. That's not fair. That's not equitable. And that's a policy running counter to the solidarity a war requires. So I'm going to produce ration books, and I'm going, I as president, and I am going to distribute them to the American people, and we're going to explain to the local grocery store, anyone who comes in here with uh, money to buy milk will be told you don't get any. The only way you get milk is if you have a ration stamp, which literally you tore out of the ration book that had been given to you by the government. You could then pay the money, but only if you were eligible by virtue of the uh, ration cards. And they were set up in such a way that prices wouldn't go up because the limited supply would be accounted for by the number of people who had the requisite stamp. No inflation developed. The unity of the United States was maintained. And that was more than a little bit important to winning the, the Second World War. Uh, and so no inflation was 
even allowed to get going under this system. It effectively made the whole price mechanism irrelevant uh, for a period of time. You know, John Kenneth Galbraith, a famous American economist uh, with whom I studied for a while, wrote a famous book early in the 1950s called The Theory of Rationing, uh, The Theory of Price Control. And, and it was a standard book to be read by the people who wanted to understand why and how an inflation was dealt with in this manner. Knowing this, I have to then tell you that the conversation we are having officially in this country among pundits, mainstream media, Republicans and Democrats, is an example of extreme as well as selective amnesia. People are proceeding as if we have to do this thing. And yet this thing, if I can put it in perspective for you, we've just subjected the American working class to the worst public health failure in the history of the United States. Uh, we've lost a million people. You know, the, China is four times larger than us. It currently lists 20,000 people dead. I mean, the difference is so staggering. You kind of you have to sit down and take a breath. We've also had the second worst economic collapse since the Great Depression. Uh, more than half our labor force has been unemployed uh, for at least a while over the last 18 months. Then we hit them with an inflation, and now we're about to whack them in the nose with a recession. I mean, this is a level of abuse of your own people that will come back, I am very confident, to haunt this society. It's already dividing it in ways that are frightening to most of us, but it will go much further. And part of the reason is this bizarre need to think as though the only way to solve the problem uh, of our inflation is to rack up the interest rates. Extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so maybe a kind of related question that I wanted to ask you is, um, as you just sort of alluded to, you know, there are a lot of opinion polls right now that show that Americans are not just divided, but like very deeply pessimistic about the economy. And this has left a lot of commentators and, you know, politicians, even supposedly progressive ones, kind of scratching their heads because they say, you know, well, GDP is up, like obviously uh, unemployment is down, uh, wages have gone up even for the kind of bottom 50%. Uh, and so, you know, you have a lot of commentators who are like, well, the economy is good on paper. Uh, so the question for you is what explains this disconnect between everybody feeling incredibly gloomy about the economy, you know, most working people. And then on the other hand, you have kind of like these elites who are saying that the economy is good. Sure. Um, the best way to get into this is to use a, a little bit of a metaphor. Uh, suppose you don't feel well, you know, you, you just you your body is telling you aches and pains and all of that. Mm -hmm. And so you go to a doctor, you, whoever your favorite doctor is, and you ask the doctor, you know, what's, what's happening to me? Please explain. Give me a diagnosis of what could be uh, ailing me. And the doctor sticks a thermometer in your mouth, pulls it out, says, gee, 98.6. You're in pretty good shape. Go home. Well, my guess is you're going to see a different doctor pretty soon uh, because that's incompetence. Mm -hmm. The reason we have loads of different tests for the body and for something we call health 
is because there are a lot of different indicators. Picking any one or two or three is silly because it's going to give you whatever the one or two or three suggest. But by not looking at the others, crucial information, whether it reinforced or contradicted what you got from the first three, is lacking. And that's incompetent behavior. Okay, economy is exactly the same, just like your health, only it's economic health. And now we have to look at a variety of indicators that we have learned over 200 years or more are important signs, mostly, of how things are going. You don't get to cherry pick. You don't get to say, well, I'm going to look at your thermometer for your temperature, then I'm going to look in your ear, and then I'm going to ask you questions about your diet. All perfectly nice things to do, but if that's the basis of your doctoring, I don't want to see you anymore. It's the same with an economist. The, the government is saturating the Democrats, including many people that I know personally. They are saturating the waves as people in power normally do, having picked one, two, or three variables that make the economy look good so that they can say the economy looks good. One of them is the unemployment rate. That's, that's a big one. Uh, and there are two or three others. But that's not enough. You can't justify an assessment of the health of the economy based on one, two, or three numbers. That's just, again, it is so incompetent that you have to look at political or other motives uh, to understand why otherwise reasonable people uh, don't, don't react positively. I mean, let me make it very personal. I got my PhD in economics at Yale University. My, one of my colleagues there was a young woman, at that time young woman, named Janet Yellen. She's, she's now a very important woman, but she had the same professors I did, the same curriculum I did, literally sat in the same room, in the same business, hearing the same professor present the same lectures I did. She knows what I'm telling you. That's what we were all taught. But as a mouthpiece for the Biden administration, she does her political duty and talks about one or two variables. Uh, let me give you some of the variables that are left out. Mm-hmm. Number one, I believe I've mentioned it. We have the highest degree of corporate debt in American history. Where does that figure in? Well, I'll give you an example. This last week, a cosmetics company, you know the name, I'm sure, Revlon, <laughs> declared bankruptcy. Why? Because it is what we call in the business a zombie corporation. What does that mean? It means a company that cannot earn enough money to cover its expenses, you know, its raw materials, its labor costs, and so on, and pay interest on its outstanding debt. So technically, it's dead. It does, it can't cover its expenses. How does it live? It borrows. It borrows more to pay off the debts from before. We call that a zombie corporation. Revlon has been a zombie corporation for years. But now with interest rates going up, they threw in the towel because now it's completely 
overwhelming them, uh, the amount that they're in the hole. Well, there are, get ready now, thousands of American companies that are zombies. Right now, as I'm talking to you, nobody knows how many of them will go belly up over the next 6, 12 months. But what we do know is in many of them, the workers are, are picking up details like there isn't toilet paper in the bathroom or the coffee break is now with a machine that couldn't make coffee in a million years or there's a fee to park your car in a parking lot when there wasn't a fee before. In other words, they're beginning to feel the walls coming in on them. Here's a second number. We are more unequal as a society in terms of the distribution of income, in terms of the distribution of wealth, in terms of the distribution of home ownership, and I could go on. And that those realities are very much more in the forefront of people's minds uh, than is an abstraction called the percentage of people without a job. Finally, yeah, we have a low unemployment rate. But you have to take into account, one, that we still have not recovered uh, the, the level of labor force participation, that is the percentage of people who are adults who are in the labor force, that we had from before the pandemic. Number two, we have substituted on a massive scale jobs that are insecure, jobs that have minimal or no benefits, jobs at low pay for what were better jobs in, in terms of those variables. And everybody sees it and everybody knows it. And everybody's family has individuals who over a summer picnic will make their complaints perfectly clear. I could go on, but I could show you that there are loads of variables that make it no mystery at all. And by the way, the Republicans, that's it. That's going to be half their campaign right. uh, between now and, and November. They're going to say exactly what Trump said when he was running against the Democrats. When he was the out, he would quarrel with unemployment numbers. Mm -hmm. Once he was in, he would tout them for his own purposes. But this level of, and let's be honest, this level of, of, of professional lying doesn't last forever. Everybody kind of figures out, yeah, yeah, what they say, who cares? And that's why the mistake of the Biden people is to mouth off like this and not wonder how that's going to play out when the public has such a different sense. I follow, I follow the consumer um, evaluations that come from the University of, Mi of Michigan. They're the oldest and most widely respected surveys of consumer attitudes. They are at historic lows. People feel very badly about their current economic situation and even worse in terms of what they foresee six months down the road. You have to deal with that. Throwing abstract numbers is not going to change anyone's mind uh, in a way that I could see. Right. 
Uh, one variable you haven't mentioned yet is the stock market. And I want to ask you about that because I personally find it pretty confusing. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, obviously during the pandemic, we all know that billionaires sort of collectively increased their wealth by, I think it was like a combined $5 trillion thanks to, you know, a stock market upsurge. Um, I just read in Bloomberg that now the top 1% uh, recently lost $1.5 trillion collectively what? because of the stock market falling. So, you know, this is very confusing to me. Um, I, I guess the question for you is, how exactly should we think about the relationship between the stock market and the larger economy? Um, yeah, that's good. The relationship there is, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the right adjective to use. <laughs> well, it's like a marriage that's in trouble. Uh, there's a lot of suspicion, a lot of doubt, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of recrimination, all of that. And that's because the relationship is very complicated and these days really torn apart by what, you know, Marxists used to teach us uh, are things called contradictions. Let me mention a few. Number one, and, and these are, in, I think, in order of importance. Um, for the first time in a century, the United States is challenged in its position as the dominant global capitalist economy. Uh, it's really had no competition for that role for a century. The little bit of incipient competition that it got from Germany before World War I, uh, and it got from Japan before World War II, were definitively settled by those two world wars in the first and second, the Germans were twice defeated. In the second, the Japanese uh, were defeated. And that meant any potential competitor was completely out of the picture. Uh, there are Americans who believe, partly because of the current stuff with Ukraine, uh, that the United States and Russia uh, are or were competitors. There might be something to that in a political or even possibly a military sense but is completely nuts uh, economically. I mean, just to give you an idea, here is a basic number which I would guess most Americans don't know. The GDP of Russia today is one and a half trillion dollars. The GDP of the United States today is over 21 trillion dollars. There is no comparison. There is no real competition here. One of these is an economic uh, giant, and the other one is an economic midget. And the rest of it is all public relations and fantasy and Cold War rhetoric. The reality is that the United States was a dominant player for a 100 years. It isn't anymore. It has a real competitor, and that is the People's Republic of China, whose GDP, by the way, is around 15 billion uh, trillion dollars. So you're talking about a powerful entity that for 25 years has grown three times faster than the United States year in and year out and is scheduled to be a larger economic entity before this decade, the, the 2020s, is over. Uh, 
that is challenging everything in the way of stock markets around the world, repositioning societies in terms of how they're going to deal with this competitor, how they're going to not hitch their their economic system to the wrong one in this competition. You can already see what is happening by the fact that huge numbers of countries around the world are not siding with the United States and Western Europe in the war between Russia and Ukraine, but are in fact siding with the other side. That's part of the adjustment. Uh, and Americans are very slow to admit or face any of it. Here's a second one. The pumping of vast amounts of money into the economy during peacetime is a new phenomenon. And that money going into an economy increasingly challenged by a competitor for the first time, made the decision, given the way money is introduced into our economy, the people in charge of all that money, borrowing it from the Fed, uh, engaging in open market operations with the Fed and all of that, that money didn't go into producing goods and services. Mm -hmm. It went instead into the stock market because that was the more profitable uh, deployment of that money. What happened was a few uh, gung-ho investors borrowed money at virtually no interest rate, bought a bunch of stocks, were able three weeks or three months afterwards to resell them at a significantly higher price, did so, and then did this same game again, and others began to realize, I can make much more money riding this upswing in the market than I can making chairs or making hamburgers or making anything in the way of goods and services. And so what we had was an artificial, if that's an appropriate word, deployment of a vast new amount of money in a very restricted area, namely the stock market. And it took off. Absolutely. It, it went crazy. The inflation we didn't have in the world of goods and services for the last 20 years, we had in the stock market. But as always happens, if it keeps going up and up and up, then sooner or later, there are people who are going to say, oh, my God, the gap between what the stock is selling for and what the underlying economy can generate over time in the way of real profits, that is so out of whack that I'm afraid that I can't continue to play the game that has been so profitable for me over the last 20 years, because I'm now at risk of being that poor sucker who buys at the peak only to watch it collapse. And then what happens is that the people who are smart enough to see this, and there are always some of them, start pulling out. That's what they did pretty much at the beginning of this year. And when that continued for a while, Many more people watching it said, uh-oh, maybe the time has come for me to step to the sidelines and wait to see how this plays out. And then you have this self-fulfilling prophecy. Everybody pulling out produces the collapse that everybody feared. 
and and that's where we are. Okay, so I I now want to turn to what I think is maybe a slightly more optimistic uh, blip <laughs> in all of this dismal economic news, which is that. Although union density is still very low in the U.S., um, obviously there's been a, a sort of recent upsurge in labor organizing. And I'm thinking here, of course, about Starbucks and Amazon, although other shops have been um, organizing as well. Um, maybe maybe you could talk a little bit about why you think this is happening right now. And, and then maybe more crucially, what would it take to sustain this organizing activity, especially at our you know, current moment of economic uncertainty? Well, I, I am an optimist. I'm not a pessimist. So I'm glad you're bringing this up. I do not want my comments on the economic situation to be interpreted as in any way suggesting that, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing we can do or that we're in some terminal decline. I do think that uh, American capitalism um, is in very deep trouble. I don't think there's any nice way of dancing around that. I see many of my colleagues uh, doing really incredible work in dancing around it. I, I, I'm impressed they are. They have more flexibility there than they do anywhere else uh, in their lives. Um, but I do notice that those I gather with, and because I went to fancy schools here in the United States, uh, I know a lot of the people that work in Washington and work for big banks and all the rest. And when we get together socially to have a cup of coffee or whatever, we don't agree on how the country got into the current situation and we don't agree on how to get out of it. But what we do agree on, and we're all amazed that we do, is, is the following sentence. This is the worst condition of the American economy in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And we all think that. And, and I, think, I think people ought to pay an awful lot of attention. But... I am very optimistic, in part because of exactly what you mentioned. Um, and it's not just, although it's very dramatic at places like Amazon, Starbucks, uh, now the Apple retail store, the first one in, in the country in Baltimore just got uh, organized. These are very, very powerful images, very powerful symbolism. Uh, but it's happening all across the, the place. Uh, the entire faculty at Grinnell College in the middle of the Midwest of the United States decides to form one campus-wide union. That's a remarkable thing. I've been a professor all my life. To get professors to get interested in the union is a lifetime's effort that probably won't succeed. To get them all together to have one big union amongst them, unbelievable progress in the way of unionizing of academics. Everybody is worried. Everybody is afraid. Everybody understands that the things are going on in this economy and in the larger society that make assumptions no longer valid, that make predictions no longer reasonable. It, it's a time when you are frightened about your own family, uh, your own family's future and so on. And in the, in the tradition of the United States, at least, People worried about their economic situation join unions. Simple idea. I've got a better shot getting through these hard times in a union with others than trying to scrabble through uh, on my own. So I take it as evidence that the system is in trouble, evidence I see already in lots of other indicators. Uh, but I also see the beginning 
of a serious uh, movement. Having said that, the biggest obstacle at this point is the movement itself. In other words, in an ironic twist, the failures of capitalism, the failures, for example, of the Bidens or the Trumps or the McConnells to come up with anything that doesn't hurt the working class step by step, this is making working people desperate. It's also making them willing to consider all kinds of ideas, proposals, programs uh, that might in the past not have gotten uh, literally to the first base. So I think that's a big sign. But the biggest problem, it's the left itself. The left has to face, a re- by left I mean the labor movement, the social movements, all of that. They have to face what happened to them. It's a little bit like an adult having to face childhood trauma. The whole effort of the Freudian analytic system is to make you aware that there were some really difficult aspects of your childhood because there were of everybody's child. It's not, it's not unique to you. It's not special to you. It doesn't make you somehow uh, amiss or, or wrongheaded uh, or exceptional. It's really only a question, do you have the courage to look at them, find them, think about them again, go through them so you can reduce their hold on you. And the left in America was systematically repressed after World War II. The Cold War, the McCarthy period, destroyed the left in this country, literally. It, it made the unions go from a third of the labor force to the, to the pathetic 10% it barely holds on to now. It completely destroyed the allies of the labor movement in the 1930s that made it powerful, which were the two socialist and one communist party. Uh, You had a very powerful alliance in the 30s between labor on the one hand, they worked at the workplace, and then the socialist and communist political parties, they worked in the largest society, in the community, in the neighborhood, in the church, in the schools. And so you had a working political alliance, labor on the one hand with the unions and the general society on the other with the left political parties. That alliance, when it is strong, when it is mutual, when it is mutually respecting its various domains, can accomplish spectacular Results. It did in the 1930s. It made the United States among the most left-wing countries in terms of responding to the Great Depression. Uh, a few days ago, it transformed European politics by taking the left in France, which had been fractured in the usual way between labor on the one hand and political parties on the other, and then divided up among all the political parties and the unions as well. They set aside most of those differences. They unified, and suddenly they're contesting for power in the political life of, the, of France. The United States is not that different. The question is, will the left understand that it has to build a strong labor movement in alliance with a strong leftist 
intellectual, historical, political, community-based. This, this is very slow in America. This happens with great trepidation, great mutual suspicion. As long as that persists, then the left, in a sense, immobilizes itself from the historic role that the objective situation actually would allow it to play. Well, so on on this question of, you know, rebuilding the left and, of course, the French election, which you just brought up um, and and on the subject of you being an optimist, uh, yeah. as, as you just mentioned, you know, President Macron um, in the last election lost his legislative majority. Uh, and uh, actually, the left wing challenger, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, actually got the second, you know, most votes. Uh, what exactly does this mean for the French left? And and maybe say a little bit more about what you think uh, this could mean for, you know, a working class movement on both sides of the Atlantic. Well, I think it is a transformation of the French left. I think it is setting in motion parallel transformations all across Europe. They will, of course, vary from country to country with each country's history and culture and politics. But the elections of the last uh, two weeks have basically answered some very basic questions. Number one, the vote for the left in France was twice, in percentage terms, the vote for the right. There is no contest whether the left is stronger in France than the right. Any lingering doubt about this... uh, should have been laid to rest uh, by late Sunday night of this last week. Uh, That's over. The left is much stronger than the right in France, and there is very little reason to doubt that it's much different in most of the rest of Europe. Now, wow, what do we do with this? Well, we notice two things. Number one, that in order for the left to show its strength, it had to set aside its many differences and five or more political parties had to come together. What one was a unified left that included the French Socialist Party, it included the French Communist Party, it included the French Green Party, and then the independent left uh, that is closest the La France Insoumise, the, 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 the French that is demanding not to be repressed anymore, kind of an independent left. They put aside their differences. They had shared unified candidate lists and all the rest, and, and they did it. And the obvious message to the rest of the world's left wings is why don't you consider doing the same? Why don't you set aside your little organizational fiefdoms, uh, your little desperate efforts to hold on to what you have by not risking, which you will have to do eventually, uh, something that's bigger and where you will not have complete control because you've gotten together with others who won't have complete control either. That's an enormous hurdle for a left that's been out of power for so long that it can't even believe it could accomplish what the French just showed they can. What it does also demonstrate is what it is the left lacks. What the left lacks is a program, is a clear, 
worked out notion of this is what we will do if you elect us to power. We really are different from the other parties. What you see in France, and you see it in this country, and you see it so far all over the place, is a very large part of the population, by the way, including France, a large part of the population that thinks these politicians are basically indistinguishable from one another. They sound alike, they look alike, they dress alike, they talk alike. It, it is a kind of, uh, the French are calling it these days, um, disengagement. The mass of the people, particularly the younger people, are disengaged from politics. They think this is a scramble among people for jobs or favors or money-making supports. It's a hustle to use English uh, rather than French. And they don't want to have any part of it. They, 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 it's all somewhat disgusting and dirty, and they don't really want to deal with it. But when you ask them questions about policy and you ask them questions about th philosophy, these are Mélenchon's voters, overwhelmingly. If he could get them, if he can be the genuinely different social direction, then he'll beat the pants off Mr. Macron next time. They're only separate by 7% of the vote. That's not very much. And you had a huge abstention. Half the French people who are eligible didn't vote. So if you, if you bring the younger ones over, Case closed, Mr. Mélenchon is the next prime minister, and that will have even more shockwaves. But before we get to that, I think that the, the lessons for the United States left are crystal clear. You need the unification and the organization of that unity, the way they did it in France. And like the French, you need to articulate a clearly different notion of what you're going to do, what kind of country you're going to make uh, to get people excited that politics can be a collective project for a better world. If you do that, you win. If you don't, if you allow the existing political system to define the boundaries of what is or isn't acceptable, you will be as failed a project in the future as you were until recently uh, in France. So, Professor Wolf, I, I want to end on a kind of similar question, but maybe broaden it out a little. And and it's this. So, uh, you know, socialists obviously in many ways talk about economics all the time, right? Socialists talk about capitalism, class inequality, and so on. But you know, at the end of the day, economics, I think, is often complicated. Sometimes it's very abstract. So the final question for you, I think, is, you know, what do you think is sort of the main thing that socialists should understand about the economy? And if we're looking forward, um, what do you think the main priority of any social socialist economic policy should be? Well, I'm afraid I have to say for economics that I'm disappointed in my profession. We spent most of our lives rationalizing, justifying, and putting a happy face on a, on a reality that's very different. The most important thing economics should teach you is that you live in a society of profoundly conflicting interests. Mm -hmm. If you can see that slavery 
is governed by a fundamental contradiction between the needs and interests and perspectives of the master versus the slave. And if you can see it applied in feudalism to the lord and the serf, then you've got to wrap your head around the fact that capitalism was not only not an escape from those, but simply, excuse me, simply a reformation in which lord and master are replaced by employer and serf and slave are replaced by employee. That's the fundamental problem. That conflict shapes the distribution of wealth and income and literally the price of everything in the store. If you don't deal with that, then you are implicitly and perhaps unconsciously reinforcing the system. You are not helping people understand it, let alone change it. All right, Professor Wolf, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you again so much and hope we'll see you soon. All right. Thank you very much. And I'm glad to have this opportunity to talk about these things. Thanks so much. Take care.